Amen. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being here. Um, if you haven't met me, my name is Joe, and I get to serve on the pastoral team here, and uh, I am excited for this flag football event. I can't play, though, because uh, my wife said our medical insurance specifically does not cover that, and I don't even know if I have six friends, so I probably wouldn't be able to get a team together, but I see some of you are in, excited for football. I saw some people wearing their Browns gear, getting the disappointment started uh, you know, out early. It's going to be a season, that's for sure, but I don't want to be skeptical, you know, but like it's what I'm used to, right? Maybe you're skeptical about Cleveland, you know, it usually starts out preseason like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to win 12 games and then after the week, for week one, you're like, maybe six, we'll see what happens. I try not to be skeptical, but I think it's good to be at least like a critical thinker. Uh, I, the problem is I tend to be more skeptical. I don't really give people the benefit of the doubt, usually instead of trust, I tend to be more suspicious. I'll give you some examples. Maybe this has happened to you. You need, you know, I need my air conditioning looked at in my house, you know? And they say, okay, we'll be there between 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. And I'm like, really? And then they get there in November. Uh, it's like, I, I uh, Amazon said my package is gonna get there on Tuesday. And I'm like, really? And it doesn't, because it went to my neighbors. I went, you know, you got to get a car repaired, right? The mechanic says, it's going to be $200. Like, sure, sure it is. I end up funding his new in-ground pool, okay? Or my daughter, like my daughter would be like, oh, hey, I didn't get that text you sent me about cleaning my room. I must not have got it. It's like, you keep your phone on you like it's a sidearm. I know you got that message, right? But we don't know. So maybe they didn't. And, and we just, we try to not be skeptical, but it just happens. Now, here's where it gets dangerous is I don't know about you, but I could carry that skepticism into my relationship with God, right? Maybe I thought God was going to do this thing or fix this thing or, or heal this person, and then he doesn't, right? And it's not that I, I, it's not that I believe, don't believe that he can. I just doubt that he will. And you, you may have struggled with this, and it caused you to become hesitant, skeptical, doubtful, Right, And I just want you to know that we are not alone in that, okay? Uh, this is not a new problem. This is a human problem. And so we're going to see in John chapter 20, which is where we're going to be today, if you brought your Bible, um, if you want to use the version app, we'll also have the text on the screen. We're going to see in John chapter 20 that some of the people who were closest to Jesus wrestled with doubt, with skepticism, with hesitation. Here's what it says. Early... On Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Jesus was crucified, and he was placed in a tomb. Well, you know, on Sunday morning, Mary goes to the tomb, and Jesus is gone. Now, her reaction here is completely uh, understandable. She, you know, Jesus was dead. She saw it happen. She witnessed the burial, and now he's missing. So she assumes what, that the body had been removed, that it had been stolen. Her assumption was not that Jesus had risen from the dead. Why? Because dead people don't come back to life. That just doesn't happen, right? And one of the arguments against Christianity is that the early followers would have been fooled by a hoax because, because they would have expected resurrection because they were less 
intellectually sophisticated than we are today. It's called chronological snobbery. And, and, but we see, we see, it's true, but we see in this that they didn't expect, they didn't believe in resurrection any more than we would today. There was no belief in that at this time. So the obvious, rational, logical conclusion was that someone took the body. So Mary runs to tell Peter and John that he's missing. And then it says this, Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And I love these verses because John just had to put it in there that he's got a better 40 time than Peter did, right? I mean, I'm not going to lie. I would have put it in there too. I think about it like this, you know. So they get to the tomb and it's empty, but they looked in and they noticed something interesting. The, the cloth, the linens that had wrapped the body, they were still lying there and they were folded, which, which means that Jesus' body was likely not stolen. If this was a grave robber, there would have been no point in undressing the body, folding up the linens, and then taking the body. So it tells us that that, that that meant something, that the body hadn't been stolen. And so it, it says in that moment that John saw that and he believed. And, and here's why. It's, well, it says, if, because up until then, they hadn't understood the scriptures that said that Jesus had risen from the, that would rise from the dead. It didn't make sense to them. All the things that Jesus was telling them about until they realized the body wasn't stolen and it finally clicked for them. Because the scriptures as a whole, even the Old Testament, only makes sense when they, we see that they have been fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. John and Peter finally had the evidence they needed and they believed. But you see, Mary was still doubtful, right? In fact, she stays behind at the tomb and sits there and she's sobbing. And then two white-robed angels appeared to her and asked her why she was crying. But she was in so much grief, she couldn't, even she couldn't even grasp what was really happening, that she was being talked to by angels. So she responds, because they have, when they ask why you're crying, she says, because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. So still in disbelief, she believes that Jesus' body must have been stolen or removed. And so she turns and walks away. She sees another man who she thought was the gardener of this area appears. And she doesn't even realize who this is. She asks if, she, if he had taken Jesus and where the body was. And then the gardener said, Mary. Mary. And it was at this moment when it became real to her, when Mary realized who it was, it was Jesus, and in that moment, all of her doubt, all of her skepticism was gone. It was erased, and she believed. So overwhelmed, she runs, and she tells the other disciples, I have seen the Lord, right? And they probably had some skepticism, because what we find out is that in this, all of the disciples, they were all hiding, all right, except for one, and they're hiding together in a locked room. Why? Well, probably because they're afraid. They just saw their leader crucified, and they were probably worried that if, if, they found out, if people found out they were associated with him, the same thing was going to happen to them. And, and so Jesus then appears to them in this place, and he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side, and he showed where the nails were. 
He not only appeared to them, but he gave them tangible evidence that it was really him. He was, this was not a hoax. This was not a hallucination. He was not a ghost or an apparition. This was Jesus physically alive, and they believed. And this is so important because the Christian faith is nothing. It's nothing if Jesus has not literally risen from the dead. And there is overwhelming evidence for that truth. But not everyone was there, right? Maybe you know the story. I'm not sure where Thomas was at the time. Maybe practicing social distancing before it was cool. I don't know. But he's the only guy to miss out on this experience. And so finally Thomas shows up. And as I would expect, you know, they say, we have seen the Lord. Well, Thomas wasn't buying it, right? He's going to need to see some proof of his own. And you would have wanted the same thing. I mean, think about it. If you think about somebody you've lost, maybe a friend or a loved one, a neighbor, a coworker, just somebody who has passed away, you are at the funeral. And then a friend says, oh, yeah, I saw them at Walmart the other day. Like, you're not going to be like, oh, well, they must have resurrected from the dead, right? No. You're going to be like, okay, well, um, you need to have your eyes checked, or it must have been somebody who looked like them, because that doesn't happen, right? So Thomas obviously isn't going to be like, oh, yeah, of course, Jesus is back. So he says, I'm not going to believe it. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hand and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side, which is kind of weird, all right? Which then lends him the nickname of what? Doubting Thomas. I don't know if that's a nickname I would have given him. I would have been like Thomas the wound-touching weirdo. I, I, just like, but, but that's his name, right? That's how everybody knows him. I mean, can you imagine just being remembered for only one dumb thing you've ever said? So I want to clear up Thomas's name a little bit today. Because I get it, right? Who could blame him? All of the other disciples had been given physical evidence, physical proof that Jesus was alive, and they hadn't initially believed either. So all he wanted was the same evidence that the others had. Because I'll be honest, I don't know about you, but, but I have doubts, right? I, I believe, I do believe, but I have unanswered questions about God and about the Bible, and maybe that rattles you to hear, you know, a pastor say that, but it's true. I mean, I'll just, like, I think about some stuff like, all right, so there was a flood, and this guy built a boat, right? And he's got to get two of every animal on there, and he just had to get two mosquitoes. <laughs> like, you could have left them out, right? You th and then I'm like, oh, okay, so Jonah, I'm like, I believe it, but I just have questions. Like, Jonah gets eaten by a fish, and he lives in the fish for three days and then just ends up whale vomit on a beach somewhere. There's, and I'm not alone. I love this, this list paraphrase from J.D. Greer. It says, some things in the Bible are hard to believe. There are scientific discoveries that seem to conflict with the Bible. Maybe you went to school. Maybe you're currently in school. And it's like you're being taught one thing at school. You're being taught something else here. How do you reconcile that? Um, the Bible's teaching on morality, you know, it can seem old countercultural, it can seem narrow-minded, it is not accepted by our world. Or this, if God is so loving, and if he's in control, then why is there so much hurt and chaos in the world? And that's just the small fraction of things that can cause doubts and skepticism. And I'll bet you have doubts too. 
Because if you're sitting there completely without doubt, then I would strongly question your honesty if you were to say that. Because a faith without doubt is a shallow faith. I always struggle with people who will just blindly believe something, even if it's the Bible, because that will not stand up when life falls apart. I've told my own kids that, listen, I don't want you to believe this because I'm a pastor or because we go to a church every week or we're a Christian family. I'm like, you have to wrestle through this yourself and find out if it's true. And I am not afraid to say that because I know that there is overwhelming evidence. There is truth. And it is important to not just know what we believe, but why we believe it. Thomas was someone who pursued the truth, and we should as well, because he was a passionate follower of Jesus and still had doubts. At one point, he said, hey, let's go to and die with Jesus. He was all in, but he doubted, but he didn't live a doubtful way of life. In fact, in one Bible study uh, commentary, study Bible commentary, it says he was a doubter, but his doubts had a purpose. He wanted to know the truth. Thomas did not idolize his doubts. He gladly believed when given reasons to do so. Doubting was only his way of responding, not his way of life. Thomas didn't live a life settling into doubt. Instead, it pushed him towards truth. It pushed him towards Jesus, and it pushed him to believe. I've learned in my time as a Christian that often People's reasons that they don't believe in Jesus is a smokescreen to cover up a deeper desire to not want to believe, right? Because here's the reality. If God is real and he sent his son and Jesus is Lord and he has given us these words, and then what this says is going to have some bearing on how I live my life. And what's going to happen after I die? And oftentimes, we don't want to face that. So we will grasp a hold of something, some doubt, some unanswered question. We will use that to justify our unbelief. And so for eight days, Thomas wrestles with this. For eight long days, he's longing for the truth. And then it happens. Jesus shows up. And he gives Thomas his evidence. He says, suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you. He said, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer, but believe. And I'm like, can you imagine that moment? I imagine it's probably dead quiet in the room. You know, Thomas is probably shaking as he reaches out. He's afraid to blink because he doesn't want to wake up. And this is just a dream. And, and he touches Jesus, and all at once, Thomas says some of the most important words in Scripture. He says, my Lord and my God. And in that moment, all skepticism vanished, all doubt removed. Jesus gives him proof of his resurrection, his, his, that he is God and that he has defeated death. What an incredible moment. An incredible moment for Thomas and all the disciples in that room, and an incredible moment for us here today, too, so that why you can believe, that you can have faith. It doesn't mean that you won't have doubts. Doubt and faith can coexist. The opposite of faith is unbelief, not doubt. Unbelief is choosing to not believe despite the evidence. And there is evidence for those who genuinely want to pursue it, Now, the way Thomas responds is really important, 
And it's important to take note of because he says, my Lord and my God. And I don't think he's being redundant here because the word Lord is the word kurios, which means master. It's a very personal response, meaning you are my master. I am yours. I am under your leadership. I give up all that I am to you. I will follow you and I will live for you. You are in charge. Even if I disagree, even if it's uncomfortable, even if I don't like it, even if I doubt and the word, the word God here is theos, which means it's a word that means deity or God. And this is a response to the recognition of who was standing before him, the, the creator of the universe, the power, the might, the greatness of God, that this man is the son of God, the savior of the world, the Messiah, the Christ. Thomas acknowledges that he's not only master, but he is God. And I think it's also critical to note one little word here, and that word is my. He says, he doesn't say you are a God. He doesn't say you are the God, you are the Lord. No, he says you are my Lord, my master, and my God. And that's personal, right? It takes it to a whole new level. It shows that this God is not some far-off God who created everything and put it in motion and stepped away. No, he is God. But... Can you say he is my Lord? Maybe you believe that he's God, but can you say he is my God? Now, I just want you to know that Thomas ended up going on to die for his faith. They believed what they saw, and they lived that life of belief out all the way to the end. And then Jesus says this, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And those are words for you and me today. And I've often thought, well, of course I would believe if I saw Jesus resurrected. But then in the gospel, it talks about how Jesus was on a mountainside and his disciples were there worshiping him. But some still doubted that even standing in front of the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus, some still doubted. Yes, yet Jesus said, blessed are those who believe and haven't seen. You know who that is? That is you and that is me. We haven't seen as they have seen. And maybe you're saying, well, I'm going to need some evidence too if I'm going to believe. And so here it is. Jesus went on to appear to Mary Magdalene and other women at the tomb. He appeared to Peter in Jerusalem. He appeared to two travelers on the road. He appeared to the disciples multiple times in multiple places. He appeared to Thomas. He appeared to James, his half-brother who didn't believe until that point, which is so critical, right? If you have a brother who says he's God, just one day he's like, hey, I just want you to know I'm God. It's like, dude, you pick your nose. Like, <laughs> when you convince your brother you're God because he saw him resurrected, he appeared to a crowd of 500. Many were present and watched Jesus as he ascended into heaven. Most of all, those people went, to turn, went on to turn the world upside down, and many of them died as followers for their Lord and God. And the reason that's important is because people don't die for something they know isn't true. And we now have evidence in the words of these eyewitnesses that we get to carry around and hold in our hands. We have evidence in the life and death of many, many believers who have witnessed what took place. We have evidence in the lives, the changed lives of believers. Many people who were lost but are now found. Many were, who were condemned but are now forgiven. And if you want proof, then I am that proof. 
a man who was far from God, bent on destruction. Nobody would have looked at me in my 20s and said, he's probably going to be a pastor someday, maybe in prison. It wasn't happening. But now I stand here as a man saved and made new with a purpose in this life. John's own words speak to this truth. He said, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. John says that he has provided all of these accounts, all of this evidence, everything we need to know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who gives eternal life. Why? So that you may believe. And that belief results in a changed life. So the question, the big question that hangs in the air is not, have you settled all your doubts? But do you believe? Do you believe? If not, we would love to talk to you about that. There, if, whether it's me or Pastor Todd or one of the worship team members, if you have questions and you want someone to pray with you and you want to make that decision to believe, let, that be, let today be that day. And if you've already made that decision, then may your life reflect that truth to a broken world who so desperately needs to see the evidence of this Jesus in our lives. Father God, I stand before you as a man humbled by the reality of the resurrection because God, had it not been for you, my life very well have been over by this point in time. And so God, I pray that you would continue to do in the lives of others even what you've done in my own life, God. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that it is not a faith based on nothing, but it is a faith based on evidence. God, it is real. May that change our lives. May we go out from here believing, even in the face of doubt.